Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bot Canon, where we find out if the well-loved classics that we have written as humans would have been quite so impressive if written by artificial intelligence. Today we offer A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state preserves of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our lord 1775. France and England were at peace. In England, there was a strange stirring in the air, hinting at unrest yet to come, and Lucy Manette felt it mightily. In the walled garden of the old Paris house, with winter coming on and frosty leaves dancing in the October sun, Charles Darnay clapped his hands to his ears to stop the screeching of birds trapped in their wire cages. He could no longer stand to stay in this house, so full of incessant bird noises, but to leave would mean leaving the company of the lovely Miss Lucy. He thought about the recent letter he had received from Mr. Stryver, his barrister, and the message from his old tutor, Dr. Manette. Both urged him to make haste to the Manette's Paris home, where young Lucy was without a companion, and to remain with her until her father could arrive. It would be but a short while before he could return to London and his duties as an officer in the army. But he agreed to make the stop, and found to his delight that Miss Lucy was a very agreeable young woman. As if he didn't know that already, Darnay thought to himself. Lucy Manette, his intended bride, he hoped, was the daughter of a respected French doctor and an Englishwoman who fell in love while both worked as volunteers at the hospital in Paris. Now the girl's mother was dead, and her father had spoken with Darnay about arranging their marriage. Although he had never met the man, Charles felt a pang at disappointing Dr. Manette, who had been so generous in his praise of his future son-in-law. So here he was, in a house walled up with birds and Lucy, waiting for Dr. Manette to return. He held the letter from Mr. Stryver in his hand. Should he go to Paris and confront the man who had wronged him so? Did he have it in him to kill again, or had that part of his life passed with the reign of terror? He dared not speak to Lucy about his dark past. She loved him and trusted him, and he could not bear the thought of destroying that good opinion she had of him. And yet, the desire for revenge against Sidney Carton, the man who had wronged him so many years ago, burned strong within him. Tossing the letter to the table, he strode out of the room. I will not run away from my problems, he muttered to himself as he left the house. The street outside was busy with carriages and people rushing here and there. Far more activity than the usual, in fact. He stopped a passerby and asked, What is the matter here? Have you not heard? Our king has been rescued from the guillotine by English soldiers and restored to the throne of France. What? He thought his ears must surely be deceiving him. How can that be? Sighing, the man explained. The English soldiers rescued him, and now he is on the throne, and the war is over. Charles was unsure what to do, and he paced up and down a nearby walkway. In front of him stood a crude gallows with two half-assembled limp bodies waiting to be hung. They were the Jacobin spies who had planned the king's execution. Looks like your plan didn't work out so well, the passerby scoffed at the men awaiting execution. You couldn't kill him. A soldier standing guard glared at him. If you say anything else, you'll face the guillotine yourself, he snapped. Charles felt as if he were in a bad dream. 
The events unfolding around him seemed impossible, even unreal. If he could just wake up. But no. He hated the sight of violence, but stayed in the square to see the men hang. He was glad Miss Lucy was not there to see it. The crowd roared. The two prisoners had been let out, looking oddly detached from the proceedings. The crowd and shouting swelled until it became a single word repeated over and over. La Treyur! La Treyur! Traitor! What does la traitor mean? Charles asked a man beside him. Why, it means traitor, of course, the man replied, a bit surprised at the question. Just then, the first man was shoved roughly onto the gallows and the rope put around his neck. The crowd grew silent as the executioners handled their task without hurry. When the second man dropped, Charles felt ill. This way, Mr. Darnay, a soldier approached him and ushered him toward a building with a waving a French flag. You are expected at the town hall. But why? he protested. The man just prodded him along, taking no notice of his questions. Once inside the town hall, Charles was shuttered into a large room and left alone. After an hour or so, a man of about forty comes out to speak to him. I am the mayor of Evreux, Mr. Darnay. Before we take you to see the king, you must understand that you are not in England any longer. Charles had, had enough. I know I'm not in England. The Manettes live in Paris, and I am here with them, he protested. What is all this foolishness? You must understand. The king has been deposed. His enemies have summoned you here to face charges of treason. Charles was thunderstruck. Treason? How could he be a traitor? He had never even seen England. What? This is madness. I am no traitor. That's not what our faithful spies tell us, the man said, almost gloating. They say you once had ties to the British monarchy, connections that have not been severed. And what is this? The man produced a letter and opened it up. It's addressed to you, from the Count of Monte Cristo, he cried, waving the nearly unmarked sheet of paper in the air. Charles grabbed the sheet of paper and read through it. It's a letter of introduction, written at my request to present to the king. That's all. I am no traitor. Ha! The mayor laughed. And those ties to the monarchy? All severed, I swear to you, Charles pleaded. We'll see about that. He winked and led him to a small room with a chair, a table, and not much else. Wait here, he commanded. He left the door open and strode away. There was no getting out of this. The king would not listen to him. He realized the man had left the door open, so perhaps he could just leave. Take Lucy and start a new life in a new country. England, perhaps? He crept out the door and down a long hallway. No one was there. He must find Lucy and escape this place. Charles had crept down several hallways and up several staircases when he heard a familiar voice. It was the king. He was in a room just up ahead. I'm glad to be back on the throne, Charles heard the king say. Now to restore order. Charles stopped to listen. What about the English spies? A voice asked. Oh, they'll be dealt with, another replied. And those traitors who rescued them, someone must pay. As he listened at the doorway, Charles realized the men inside were talking about him. It was far too dangerous to stay here. He hastily left the doorway and found his way outside the building. No one stopped him. He found a horse tied to a railing and rode off on it. He had escaped the king's men, but... What now? Charles stopped the horse and pondered his choices. Where could he go? And what of Miss Lucy Manette? Could he just leave her behind? No, he could not. He directed his horse to the Manette home and rushed inside to find Lucy. Charles, she called, running to him. I'm so glad to see you. What's happening? He told her about the king's men and his escape and offered for them to flee the city together. But where shall we go? She asked. Charles did not know. It would break my father's heart for me to leave Paris, she said sadly. Could we wait it out here for a bit? The king must return soon. Charles agreed to wait, but only for a little while. He would not let her loyal affections get her into trouble with the king. They would leave soon together. And 
Besides, he worried that she did not seem to know the king was his enemy at this moment. Perhaps she would not be the loyal companion he hoped for. The day after the execution of the Manette family, a carriage stopped at an inn on the way to Lille. The two people inside, a man and a woman, both in plain dress and hooded cloaks, stepped out of their carriage. They entered the inn and paid for a night's rest. The occupants of the inn were all gloating about the Manettes finally being caught and executed. The man and the woman stayed strangely silent. The innkeeper noticed this and looked curiously at them. They were young, he guessed. They were a man and a wife. He could not tell much else. Just as the innkeeper was about to ask them something, their food arrived at their table. He watched them over their food. They ate nervously, darting glances around, listening to the conversation around them. Strange that Miss Lucy Manette looks so different at her execution, one stranger said. Of course she looked different. She'd been in jail for days, another replied. No, the first man insisted, not just from jail, from illness. The other men laughed at this. The woman pulled her bonnet more tightly around her face, and the couple finished their food. Finally, the man called for their reckoning, paid, and went back out to the carriage. He helped the woman inside and took the reins from the boy who had been driving. The coachman called to the horses, and they set off again down the road. I wish we could have stayed there, the woman said. It was too dangerous, the man said. They know what you look like. The people in that town were very nasty about the Manettes, though, she replied. Perhaps it would be wise to change our route. No, it is too dangerous, he said. They rode on in silence for a few minutes. Then the woman spoke again. I do feel sorry for the woman who took my place, she said, but it was the only way I could think of to escape. Yes, he said, it was the only way. And the two of them rode on, toward England and freedom, they hoped.